This episode contains descriptions of murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The following is from the 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards when our protagonist watches two men mysteriously disappear from a train platform. It was the strangest disappearance in the world. It was like a transformation trick in a pantomime. They were there one moment, palpably there, talking with the gaslight full upon their faces, and the next moment, they were gone. There was no door near, no window, no staircase. Could anything be more mysterious? It was not worth thinking about, and yet, for my life, I could not help pondering upon it. Pondering, wondering, turning it over and over in my mind and beating my brains for a solution of the enigma. Hi everyone, I'm Alastair Murden, and this is Haunted Places Ghost Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Ghost stories have arisen from every century and every corner of the world, from the streets of Victorian Whitechapel to the temples of Japan. Whether seated around the campfire or curled up with a pair of headphones, we return to them time and again to feel our skin crawl and our hearts race. Episodes of Ghost Stories are inspired by classic short stories from some of history's greatest authors. The following version is our own unique take. It may feel familiar in some ways and different in others. We hope you enjoy it. You can find episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Today's story is the 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards. Born in 1831, Edwards was a British author and travel writer. She showed an affinity for storytelling from an early age and began her professional writing career as a journalist. Edwards began working as a journalist in order to help support her family. Her experience as a reporter is evident in tales like the one we are covering today. The 415 Express is a narrative where every detail is important, and each twist of fate has a consequence. I will be narrating this story as William Langford, a middle-aged English bureaucrat. After a chance encounter on a train, Langford becomes embroiled in a mystery, one that makes him question the very nature of his reality. Coming up, an unexpected meeting turns Langford's world upside down. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I used to think... Hard work could set you free. But now I think too much toil can harden people. Maybe it chips away at the soul and creates men who are numb and cruel or even murderous. My change of heart only began two weeks ago. It was late December and I was sprinting down the platform at King's Cross Station. I didn't know it then, but I was five minutes late for an appointment with an ominous destiny. I rushed through the crowd and made it to the tracks just as the 4.15 express train gained speed. I yelled for someone to hold the door. A freckled young man in a stained porter's uniform reached a hand from the quickly moving train. I grasped it and he pulled me in. For a moment, I just stood there, breathing heavily and wondering how it had come to this. I'd never been late for a train in my life. In fact, I usually arrived an hour early. To reach the station a full five minutes late was utterly out of character. Of course, I hadn't been feeling like myself for a while. For the past few months, I was living in Sweden where my firm had been hired to refit the Stockholm sewer system. As the lead surveyor, I was in a position of particular responsibility. It wasn't so bad at first, but then the winter set in. After a few months, the long hours, sunless days, and frigid weather got to me. I had trouble sleeping and was plagued with nightmares. By the time the project came to fruition, I was in dire need of some rest. Thankfully, though, I was holiday-bound. My good friend, Mr. Jonathan Jelf, had invited me to spend Christmas at his home, Dumbleton Manor. I'd readily accepted the offer and booked my tickets through London. But after nearly missing my train and realizing just how out of sorts I was, I began to worry I would not be very good company. After I'd caught my breath, the porter showed me to a private compartment. I told him I did not wish to be disturbed. I settled into my seat and pulled a stack of papers from my attaché case. As the train left the city, I glanced out at the landscape rushing past my window. It occurred to me that these vistas were not dissimilar from the ones I often saw in my troubling dreams. Brackish estuaries meandered through the countryside. They pooled at the bottom of snowy valleys and overflowed onto the rocky banks of darkening riverways. I turned my attention back to my seat. I had taken leave of my work, but unfortunately my work had not taken leave of me. As always, there were contracts to look over and plans to approve. I heard the sound of a key rattling. Another traveler was sliding open the door to my compartment. As I turned around to see who was so rudely disturbing me, my breath caught in my throat. I'd seen this man before. Not once, but many times. 
He had a narrow face and piercing blue eyes that scanned the compartment before settling on the seat in front of me. I thought of the nightmares that had haunted me in Sweden. In my rattled state, I briefly wondered if it was where I knew him from. Perhaps the man sitting across from me had appeared to me in my dreams. The spell of apprehension broke when he cleared his throat. I almost laughed aloud at my delirious assumption. In an instant, I realized I did know him, but not from any dark prophetic dreams. I'd met him at a party three years before at Dumbleton Manor. He was a relative of the Jelfs, a cousin, I think. As I remember it, he was a bit of a bore, the type who never talked about anything but his work. I held out my hand, saying, Mr. John Dwerryhouse, I believe? He gave me an odd look. I explained the circumstances in which we had met, and he nodded slowly. It occurred to me that the years had not been kind to him. Lines of displeasure had been etched into the sallow skin around his mouth, and his intense eyes now appeared hollow and lifeless. I smiled and said, How wonderful to run into another friend of Jonathan's on the way to Dumbleton Manor. Dwerry House's expression soured as he replied, I'm traveling on business, actually. I silently cursed myself. I had assumed he had been coming for Christmas also, but it seems he hadn't received an invitation. I was mortified by my faux pas until he continued. I'm going north. I was put in charge of the rail company's new East Anglian line. I've been asked to transport 75,000 pounds to the Squire in Mallingford. That's where I'm headed tonight. I raised an eyebrow. You mean to say that you have 75,000 pounds on your person at this moment? Dwerryhouse nodded, his eyes surveying me curiously. He must have concluded I wasn't a threat because he launched into a long, self-important speech about the construction of the rail line. He droned on about all the people he had to see and the tasks he had to accomplish. I tried to remain engaged, but my exhaustion was too great to endure his rambling. Instead, I gazed out the window where ominous black shapes were forming in the distance. Dwerry House barely seemed to notice my distraction. My eyelids grew heavy. The low rumble of Dwerry House's voice bled into the clangorous roar of the train. Then, in mere moments, I found myself standing in a bog. I sank slowly into the mud. Solid ground was only a few meters away, but I couldn't reach it. I knew then that I was in another one of my nightmares. Sure enough, same as always, the man appeared. He was but a black outline against the horizon. I could never see his face, but there was something unsettling about him in every dream. He reminded me of a wild dog, tense and fearful. It seemed he might attack with the ferocity of a cornered animal at any moment. He held a large round object. It looked like a life preserver, but when he threw it at me, I realized it was a tangle of thorny vines. I flung up my arms to protect myself, but it did little good. 
There was a sickening thud as a sharp branch collided with my temple, and my vision went dark. I awoke with a start and looked up into the freckled face of a surly young lad. It was the porter who pulled me onto the train. I noticed his name tag read Summers. He was asking for my ticket. As I rummaged through my pockets, I glanced up to see Dwerry House smirking at me. The look on his face irritated me. After all, I had just been rudely woken from a nightmare. After some scrambling, I retrieved my ticket and handed it to Summers. He gave a cursory examination and then turned to leave. I knew I was being petty, but I wanted to see Dwerry House fumbling for his own ticket. I called out, asking, Was it only my ticket that you needed? For a moment, Summers just looked at me curiously. Then he followed my gaze toward Dwerry House and answered slowly, I've already taken the other ticket, sir. My face flushed. Dwerry House must have handed him his ticket while I was asleep. After an awkward pause, Summers left the compartment. At that moment, Dwerry House rose and collected his things. Feeling ashamed of my outburst, I mustered a farewell. Good luck with your project. I'm sure you'll be missed at Dumbleton Manor. He gave me a curt nod and said, Do tell my cousin that she needn't burn the house down the next time I come to visit. Before I could ask what he meant, the train came to a stop and the peculiar man was gone. But he'd left something on his seat. It was a silver cigar case with the monogrammed letters JD etched on its side. It must have fallen out of Dwerry House's coat pocket as he was getting up. I reached for it, but as soon as my fingers grazed the soft Morocco leather, I felt an overwhelming sense of foreboding. I shook the feeling off and snatched it from the seat. I then ran into the hall toward the exit. He couldn't have gotten far. Up ahead, Summers was manning the train door. I peered past him to the station platform and spotted Dwerry House striding through the crowd. The man in my compartment left his cigar case, I told Summers. I need to give it back to him, but I won't be more than a minute. Summers gave me an odd look, but in my haste, I simply leapt onto the platform. I dashed through the station. Dwerry House was at the other end, speaking with a short, sandy-haired man. Their faces were illuminated by the light of a gas jet just above them. As I made my way through the crowd, I noticed a rope hanging down from the gaslight. I quickened my pace. I needed to get this cigar case back to Dwerry House, and quickly, before the 4.15 Express closed its doors. I sprinted across the platform, but as I grew closer, I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye. I glanced toward the gaslight once more. I realized then that what I thought was a rope was actually a vine. It was just like the one from my dreams, except this one was moving. It quickly snaked down the light pole, crawling toward the two unsuspecting men. And then I watched in blistering panic as it wrapped tightly around their necks. Coming up, Langford untangles the truth about Mr. Dwerry House.
This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. I gasped in terror as the strange vine twisted itself tighter around the throats of Dwerry House and the sandy-haired man. But when I stepped forward to help them, I stumbled on a bag left on the train platform. I glanced down just for a moment. When I looked up again, Dwerry House and the sandy-haired man had vanished. And so had the menacing vine. I stood on the platform at Stockbridge Station, staring in astonishment. I couldn't understand how everything had disappeared before my eyes. Desperate, I grabbed the arm of a nearby guard. There were two men standing right here just seconds ago. Did you see which way they went? The man gave me a quizzical look and said he hadn't seen anyone. At that moment, the train whistle sounded. Summers leaned out to yell that I had better run. I sprinted for the door and made it inside just as the wheels began to turn. As the train carried me from the station, I couldn't tear my eyes away from the place where the two men had been and where the vine had throttled them. Summers gave me an odd look and asked if I was all right. I mumbled something about needing rest and stumbled back to my compartment. This was just the inevitable result of an exhausted mind, I thought, and these outlandish illusions were the consequence. I could only hope that my holiday to Dumbleton and some much-needed rest would rid me of my strange dreams. When I arrived at Dumbleton Manor a few hours later, I was given the warmest of welcomes. My old friend Jonathan Jelf was as stout and affable as ever. He insisted that I take a glass of plum brandy. Elizabeth, his wife, fussed endlessly over the state of my rain-soaked clothes. I changed into suitably dry attire, and we reconvened in the dining room for roast partridge and chantilly potatoes. The good food and pleasant company cheered me considerably. In fact, I didn't think of John Dwerry House until the meal was nearly over. But as dessert was served, I suddenly remembered the message he wished to deliver to his cousin. As we tucked into our steamed pudding, I turned to Elizabeth and said, I forgot to mention, I ran into a relative of yours on the train, your cousin, Mr. John Dwerry House. In an instant, the convivial atmosphere of the room evaporated. 
Elizabeth's spoon clattered loudly against her plate, and the color drained from Jonathan's face. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat. Unsure of what to do, I continued. Elizabeth, he said to tell you that you needn't burn down the house the next time he comes to visit. Elizabeth looked down at her hands, tears pooling in her eyes. Mortified and confused, I cleared my throat and searched desperately for a different topic of conversation. Before I could think of anything, Elizabeth pushed her chair away from the table and announced she was feeling tired. I started to apologize, but she hurried from the room before I could say a word. I turned to Jonathan. I'm terribly sorry if I've caused offense. I thought his comment was a joke. At least, it seemed like one when Dwerry House said it. Jonathan shook his head wearily, then explained. The last time John Dwerryhouse stayed at Dumbleton Manor, the flu in his room hadn't been swept in months. The rooks had built a nest in it. When the servants lit a fire, it nearly incinerated the chimney. But a comment about my wife's housekeeping wasn't what caused her grief. I looked back at him, confused. He furrowed his brow and asked, Are you certain that it was John Dwerryhouse that you saw? I told him it was. We had spoken some during the journey, I explained. I'd even picked up the cigar case that Dwerryhouse had left in the compartment. Jonathan's eyes widened, and he asked if he could see it. I pulled the case from my pocket and placed it upon the table. Jonathan examined it incredulously. Well, this is his cigar case. Perhaps you are not mistaken. I replied that of course I wasn't mistaken. Why was he so surprised by any of this? Jonathan took a deep breath, then continued. Three months ago, John Dwerryhouse was traveling with 75,000 pounds of company money. They had sent a carriage to meet him at Stockbridge and take him across the marsh. But the carriage never made it. They found the driver the next morning. His body was just outside the train station. His skull caved in. Dwerryhouse habitually carried a silver-mounted Malacca cane. It's a type of defensive weapon. I believe some men call it a life preserver. His had a very particular lead knot at the end of it. The police found an impression of that knot pressed into the poor driver's head. <sighs> we were devastated to learn this news, especially my wife. She and Dwerry House were very close. Elizabeth maintains he couldn't have been capable of such a thing. But we haven't seen or heard from him in a month, and, well, why would that be if he wasn't guilty? I could not believe what I was hearing. Could Dwerry House be a murderer on the run? In a quavering voice, I said, Jonathan, while we were talking on the train, Dwerry House told me he was carrying exactly 75,000 pounds for the railway company. Then he got off at 
Stockbridge. Jonathan shook his head in bewilderment. I tried to keep the edge of panic from my voice as I asked, Why would Dwerryhouse show his face on the very train line where he committed the crime? Somebody had to have recognized him. Why didn't anyone telegraph the police? It was clear Jonathan was just as perplexed as I was. He said, Whatever is happening, we'll figure it out. We can go back to the train station tomorrow and investigate. If he is guilty, we can't risk Dwerryhouse being out on the loose. He could be a murderer, even if he is family. He turned to me, changing the subject. In the meantime, you should go to bed. It looks as though you could use some rest. I smiled sadly at my old friend. He had no idea how right he was. That night, as I lay restless in bed, I realized it was not my encounter with an alleged murderer that was keeping me awake. No, it was fear of that spectral marsh and the man from my dreams. It felt so real. I was terrified that it might come to me again. And I was correct. When I closed my eyes at last, I was back in the marsh almost immediately. Only this time, when the dark man threw the life preserver toward me, it did not turn into a tangle of sticks and vines. Instead, it became a silver-mounted malacca cane. I felt its handle collide with my temple. Then I woke up. When I opened my eyes, I was surprised to see the sun peeking above the horizon. My limbs felt heavy with exhaustion, and a look in the bedroom vanity soon told me I didn't look much better. When I lumbered into the breakfast room, Jonathan asked if I'd slept at all. I smiled weakly and told him not to worry. With any luck, our investigation today would set my mind at ease. After breakfast, we took Jonathan's carriage to Stockbridge and sought out the stationmaster. He told us that he knew John Dwerry House well, as did everyone who worked along the East Anglian line. I asked if he'd seen the man recently, and the stationmaster scoffed. If I had, he wouldn't still be walking around a free man. There's been a warrant out for his arrest since September 25th. I asked if I could speak to the porter who was collecting tickets on the 415 Express yesterday. The station master nodded. That would be Benjamin Summers. He'll be working the express from Crampton today. It's due to stop here in about 10 minutes. Jonathan and I took a seat on a damp wooden bench facing the train tracks. As we waited, I could not stop my eyes from drifting toward the distant windswept marshes. I was staring at one tree in particular, a willow. Its languorous branches swayed slightly in the breeze. And then, that same dark silhouette from my dreams stepped out from behind it. I jolted in place, startling Jonathan. But when I rubbed my eyes, the shadow had vanished. Jonathan turned to me, puzzled. But before I was forced to explain, the train finally came rolling into the station. The station master climbed aboard and emerged with the freckle-faced porter, Summers. The older man thrust the boy in front of me and grunted, These men have a question for you about Mr. Dwerryhouse. Jonathan asked, 
Son, do you know Mr. Dwerry House? The boy gave us a searching look as he replied, I'd know him anywhere. Everyone would. Mr. Dwerry House is a wanted man. My hands clenched into fists. Someone was trying to play the fool. I practically screamed at him. Then why didn't you say anything when you saw him in the compartment with me yesterday? Summers gave me a curious look and said he didn't understand the question. I tried to calm myself with a deep breath. Then I asked again why he hadn't said anything when he saw Mr. Dwerry House in the compartment with me. Summers shuffled nervously before he replied, Sir, I remember seeing you on the train yesterday. I recall waking you and taking your ticket. But Mr. Dwerryhouse was not with you yesterday. You were travelling alone. Thanks again for tuning in to Haunted Places Ghost Stories. We will be back next week with a conclusion to our adaptation of Amelia B. Edwards' The 415 Express. You can find more episodes of Ghost Stories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast free exclusively on Spotify. See you on the other side. Haunted Places Ghost Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places Ghost Stories was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Wendelin Sabroso, Kate Murdoch, and Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Alastair Murden. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.